Our scripture today is from 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 9 through 13. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. This is the word of the Lord. So I'm very excited to turn the mic over to Jason Brown, who is with us again. Thanks, Whitney. Good morning, everyone. I I think I was here just a little over a month ago, so I'm grateful to be back. Uh, with all of you again. And I left last time just thinking about, honestly, how great this congregation is. So for what it's worth that I'm not trying to butter you up prior to the sermon. Um, so just a w- real brief background on me. live in Norwalk now. I work at a financial planning investment management firm called Foster Group in West Des Moines. And we've got three kids. So we've got a junior in college, a freshman in college, and then a sophomore at Norwalk. So, and we've been married for 23 and a half years now. So, yeah, that's a good thing. Um, so I wanted to start by sharing one of my favorite poems with you. It's a poem by Emily Dickinson. And I guess kind of the theme is, as far as I understand it, one of the ways of my putting it when I've talked with Matt and Kate is kind of the extraordinary in the ordinary. And I feel like This poem kind of gets at it. So here's the poem. Tell the truth, but tell it slant. Success and circuit lies. Too bright for our infirm delight. The truth's superb surprise. As lightning to the children eased with explanation kind. The truth must dazzle gradually, or every man be blind. And there's a lot to like in that poem. If if you'd like it afterwards, I'll, I'll help you get connected to it. But I think the thing that really stands out to me is the phrase there, the truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind. And in general, I think this is the way that God reveals his truth to us. It's in gradual, surprising, often very subtle ways. So uh, I, for whatever reason, when I was thinking about the way that God moves, uh, how he reveals kind of the extraordinary things in ordinary ways. I had a recent experience that came to mind. I'm not sure what you'll think of it, but Emily and I, we were in the parking lot of Fairway in Norwalk, and we do not go to the grocery store very often together. To be honest with you, I do not go to the grocery store very often. So we rarely do it together. This was on a Saturday afternoon, so we were either headed somewhere and needed to pick something up, or we were on our way home and needed to pick something up. And we're in the parking lot. It's a really hot, still very summery day. And as we were finding our parking space, uh, there was this classic car that was driving by, just right in front of us. And the window was down. 
and in it, I saw this, we saw this probably 65-ish year old man. He had Albert Einstein-like white hair just going all over the place. He was smoking a cigarette, and he had 90s rap just pumping out of his car. And he just is driving in and careens into the parking lot. Now, here's the deal. Right in that sense, I just started laughing. Because, and here's why. I, I really honestly felt like God was revealing God's self to me in that moment. God was revealing his joy. God was revealing kind of his utter freedom. And I also think that in that, and, and his kindness, I just had this overwhelming sense of just how good God is. Now, how, how does that happen? Like, this is the first thought. I doubt that that man thought, you know, I'm going to be a mediator of God's presence to somebody in the fairway parking lot today. And yet, that is how God met me, maybe even met us that morning. And I suppose I kind of love that about God, that God, I mean, every moment, everywhere we go, there's this kind of latent potency in which God might show up and reveal what God is like to us. The first time I had this sense of God's delight in revealing the extraordinary and the ordinary was when I was 23 years old, I had just graduated from college. And I was joining the staff of a group of people who helped college students grow spiritually. The name of the organization was InterVarsity. And I had only been a Christian for a few years. Uh, they were kind of taking a bet on me. I barely knew the Bible at all. And so they thought, hey, as we start to develop Jason, one of the keys here is we have to help him get to know the Bible a little bit better than what he does. And so I was in this group discussion at a week-long camp with other college students. We were led by one of my colleagues, but other than that, I was the only one who, hadn't, who had graduated from college. So, uh, and what we did is we studied the Gospel of Mark together. We studied and talked about it. And we got to Mark 4, and I imagine many of you are familiar with the story that happens there. Uh, it's when Jesus tells this story about a farmer sowing seeds. And the story is incredibly basic. He says, uh, so a farmer's out sowing seeds. He threw some seed on the path that was quickly wiped away. He threw some seed on rocky soil, and it really never started to grow. He threw some seed on weedy soil, and it started to grow a bit, but it didn't bear a lot of uh, fruit. And then he threw some seed on really good soil, and when he did that, the, it produced a huge crop. And for whatever reason that day, uh, you, one of the things that makes that story, well, let's just say this. I mean, we, we grew up in Iowa. Many of us grew up in Iowa. We're familiar. If you're a farmer and you're coming out that day, which many of them were, and if they weren't farmers, they were very familiar with how things actually happen agriculturally. And if you were coming that day expectant to have some great teaching, to see the miracle worker, to see the guy who had been casting out demons and healing lepers and these sorts of things. And you get there and really this is the only story from that particular day, that moment, that Mark records. And you're a farmer and you go out and you hear with all of these expectations a guy tell you a story as a farmer which is essentially this, hey, 
If you put seed in good soil, it has a lot better chance to grow. Now, because it's Jesus, we look at him now, we know, and we know the end of the story. We don't necessarily have the sense, but I imagine myself there that day, and I think I would have left very disappointed in what I had experienced. What Mark says is, later that day, when his disciples and the others who had stuck around with them went and asked him concerning the meaning of the parable. And I love that. It's as if just a few people, just a few people said, you know what? I think you meant more than something just about farming. Would you tell us what it is that you meant? And then Jesus tells them the meeting, but right then, the first thing he says to those people who had this measure of curiosity, who had this sense that there was something potent underneath, there was something extraordinary in the ordinary, they went to him and said, hey, what was that all about? And Jesus says to them, to you has been given the kingdom of God. And then he talks with them about having ears to hear and eyes to see. And of course our ears hear, our eyes see, but he was meaning like really seeing, really hearing, in a sense like being at the place where we could be in the parking lot at Fairway and kind of like being ready for God to do something and say something. And that's true for any of us. That readiness, that awareness to be prepared for God to show up and say something. And for whatever reason, in that moment, as I was processing this text with uh, my colleague who was there, uh, I just started bawling because I felt like, oh, you are so great, Jesus. You, you, you know, you're more clever than what I ever thought. And I love the fact that you like to, to wrap things up. I think, you know, God, what he likes to do is he wrap, likes to wrap his glory up in newspapers, you know. He likes to hide it. Jesus talks about that there too. God hides things so that they can be found. He, he puts things under and closes them in the hopes that they'll be opened up. I, uh, my, our son Jack, this would have been years ago, he's now a freshman at college, so I think he's probably like six, seven years old. At his school, uh, people would bring really, honestly, kind of cheap, ridiculous Christmas gifts and then the kids would, I don't know if they do this at any of your kids' schools, but they have this Christmas fair and then the kid gets to go and give like a dollar and then they get to pick something out for mom and for dad that they think mom and dad are gonna like. And I sometimes play golf and Jack knows I like golf. And there was a three pack of Titleist, or no, not Titleist, Top Flight XLs, which for those of you who don't play golf are like the cheapest, worst golf balls you can buy. They're terrible. But Jack saw those, and he thought to himself, my dad would love these. So he wraps them up, and the teachers didn't help them much, right, because it was all going to be a kid's activity. So he wraps it up, and the wrapping was so horrible that I honestly had no idea what was underneath it. <laughs> and Jack comes home, and I remember this so vividly because it's just so touching to me. 
he comes back home and he's like, here, Dad. Or actually, put it under the tree. And again, when you have kids, it's like when you, Christmas Day comes or whenever you open your presents, they're like, you got to open mine first. And they just bring it to you. So Jack brought his present to me, and he's sitting there staring at me. You're going to open it? So I open it up, and I find the worst three-pack of golf balls, new golf balls you could get your hand on. And Jack was so excited for me to open it up. And I, of course, I'm, I'm a halfway decent dad. So I said, Jack, these are so great. Thank you so much. And this, I think, again, is what God is like. He's a God of surprises. He likes to wrap extraordinary things up in very ordinary things. He actually delights in this. He likes in moving this way. Um, in revealing himself in this way to us. I think that this is actually one of the through lines of the Bible. I put a few texts together to kind of help us see how it's a through line. So this is uh, from Deuteronomy 7.7, in which God is talking about his choice of the Israelites, his choice of the Jewish people. And this is not exactly like what you would want to hear from God about why he would choose you as a group of people. So this is it. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people, for you were the fewest of all peoples. God didn't choose the Israelites because they were so great. He chose them expressly because of their inadequacy, their utter smallness because this is how God reveals himself. Uh, the prophet Isaiah, as he was talking about the future Messiah, writes this about the Messiah. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by humankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. And here's what's interesting. Once Jesus lived his life, once Jesus died, once Jesus was resurrected, at that moment, suddenly this passage became messianic because until that point, it was utterly overlooked. And you can understand why. Like if somebody would have said, oh, well, didn't, didn't the prophet Isaiah talk to us in this way about maybe what the coming Messiah might look like? They'd be like, nah. We're not paying attention to that one. But once Jesus actually lived his life, this becomes, and, and many of you, you, you may even read it here at Easter, or maybe if you've been at an Easter service or a Good Friday service, this is one of the primary texts that is used to talk about what Jesus is like. And it couldn't have been any other way. And then, of course, Jesus comes and we're almost into that season of Advent, as hard as it is to believe. We're getting close to Advent where we're going to remind ourselves of the story. I, I probably don't need to sort of rem, uh, talk about the contours of this story, but just as a reminder, okay, who was Jesus? His mother was pregnant with him prior to getting married in a culture that did not have a category for that. The mom and dad, Mary and Joseph, were fo forced to go to Bethlehem late in the pregnancy. 
As we know, he was born in a barn. He was placed in a major. Shortly after that, he was a refugee in Egypt. He grew up in the town of Nazareth, the backwater province of Galilee. His dad was a carpenter. He had no formal sort of religious education. And what we know later on in his life is he basically had nothing. He had no money. He had no political power whatsoever. As a matter of fact, when the devil came to tempt Jesus, and I think that this is really a key point, the devil said, hey, I know what you're up to and how you're going to get this job done. So you could have all the power on the planet, the political power on the planet. Because that's just what, the way we humans think. And Jesus said, no, we're going to do it differently. He ministered outside of Jerusalem. That, that's, you know, a slightly interesting thing. Jerusalem was a hub of everything. He rarely went there. He hardly did anything there. As a matter of fact, the only gospel that talks about this is John. None of the others do they even have him there until he gets crucified. So he's outside of there. You all know the people that he called to be with him. Normal people, tax collectors, fishermen. Again, no formal religious education. Nothing that would commend them to be particularly spiritual people. Uh, he, always, he was always telling people to be quiet, too. All, all the time. When you read the stories, like he did something great, and he would say, hey, don't tell anybody about that. Just... You know, and there's kind of a, hey, let's have this just be between you and me sort of thing. And I think there's also a like, hey, because once you start talking, people are going to start to create their own boxes, and they're going to put me in what this box is. And I think Jesus was just like, look, we don't need to go to any boxes. I'm not interested in any boxes. I don't need you to say anything about who I am. Now, he does ask them internally. I don't need you. All I need to do is just keep living my life, doing what I'm doing, and we're going to let people come to their own conclusions about who I am and what I'm like. And, you know, he goes to his death without saying anything. He's unjustly charged. He's unjustly tried. He's unjustly executed. And the whole time, he remains quiet. This is... This is God's M.O. God reveals himself in subtle, quiet, rather unextraordinary ways. And this is, of course, what you've been talking about, I think, when you've been focusing on this little passage in uh, Corinthians, um, where Paul says to this very small group of people, I mean, at the time, this thing was just a little germ of an idea. That community was so small, probably smaller than this group assembled here. It's interesting to think about a letter being written to them that now the world has read for 2,000 years. Probably smaller than this group. And that's why Paul had to remind them, hey, God is actually speaking to the world through you. I love to, similarly, when he writes to the church in Ephesus, another really small group, he calls them, Paul says, you are God's handiwork, or some translations say masterwork, and maybe some of you have heard this, but the Greek word there is poema, 
And I suppose I really like that the best because what Paul seems to be saying is you are God's poem to the planet. It's you. And I would imagine that you all feel a little bit like me most of the time. If you were ever to come to any of the athletic activities my kids were in, you would think to yourself, how does God ever speak through that guy? Thank you for laughing at that. I just feel so ordinary, sometimes so angry, sometimes so acquisitive, trivial, not much. Yet this is who God uses. And Paul has to say this and God has to keep repeating it because it, it's, it genuinely is really hard to believe that this is how God works because our world is so loud. It feels as if the world is dominated by the loud, by those who have power and influence. But God moves through the lowly, me. And just for a minute, I want to explore why this is the case. I alluded to some things earlier that maybe why it's the case is because the truth has to dazzle gradually. Maybe why it's the case is because God actually has fun doing it this way. But I think the real reason that God reveals truth, the extraordinary and the ordinary, is because this is who God actually is. And if you take nothing away from this little talk today, I really want you to take this away. And I want you to meditate on it, if you would. Is that God does it this way because God is actually way more ordinary than what we think. I mean, for creating the universe, he's just way more lowly in his being. The story that I have spent more time just thinking about, probably in the last five or six years, is one of two stories that occurs near the end of John. And John teased this story up by saying, and now Jesus showed, him, showed them the full extent of his glory. And there's two things that happen after that. Number one is the foot washing, where he washes people's feet. And number two is the crucifixion. And it's as if there's an alarm bell that John wants to go off in us. Pay attention right now, because in this moment, you are going to get more clarity on who Jesus is than he has ever shown before. And when we say more clarity on who Jesus is, what we mean is we're going to get more clarity on who God is. Because God sent Jesus in part because we are so confused about what God is like. And in Jesus, we meet God. We see what God is like. So there, Jesus disrobes. He puts on a towel. He puts water in a basin. And he begins to go around and wash the feet of his disciples. He literally, he takes on the costume of a slave, of a servant. And he's washing the disciples' feet. And all of them are horrified. It's very difficult to imagine what they were feeling inside, but it's so humiliating, so excruciating for them to watch Jesus do this that all of them wanted to leave. And of course, it's only his best friend, Peter, who has the courage to step up and voice what the whole group is feeling. And he says to Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. And I love Jesus' response. Peter, unless I do this, 
you have no part with me. And one of my readings of this is that Jesus is saying, unless you let me do this, then you really don't understand who I am. And Paul, you're going to have to let go of your ideas of who you think I'm supposed to be, who you think God is at, like, to actually accept what I am doing right here. And I've been meditating on this. I've been thinking about this so much because this has become, when I think about what God is like, what the God of the universe is like, when I think about that, this is the passage I go to because I think God is saying, this is what I'm like. I know you find it hard to believe, and if I may say this, and I, we don't need to argue about it today, and I know there's all kinds of other stories in this special book of yours that might indicate that I'm other. I know you're confused, but this is me. And in my imagination, at least, Jesus is not looking up as he's washing their feet and going, oh, my God, I cannot believe I have to wash the feet of these suckers. You know, I do not want to do this. I think that he's looking up at them with a smile on his face because you all know what it's like when you get to be who you really are. Just think about that moment for a minute when you have that sense of right now in this moment, this is like the full expression of who I am. It's such a fun, good thing. And in this moment, in a way unlike any other moment in the life of Jesus, Jesus was like, I get to be who I fully am. And I wonder if we could have the courage to let go of the many thoughts we have about who God is to at least consider the possibility that who God is in his being is a foot washer, a glad, happy servant to the planet. And this is why God moves in the way he does. Not because it's kind of a fun idea, but because this is what he's like through and through, all the way down. So I, I told Matt and Kate, and I told Josh too, that I would have a story for you all about God revealing God's self in the life of kind of an ordinary human being. So I texted Josh and I let him know, I was like, hey, um, I'm going to tell a story, and he was very excited about this. What Josh didn't know is that I was going to ask him to come forward right now so that I could interview him. So we're going to try this. Would you welcome Josh DeWard to the stage here? And I'm going to hand you, no, no, you take it, buddy. Okay. You step up here. How do you feel right now? Uh, surprised. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Josh. Uh, tell your friends here a little bit about um, growing up and maybe some how, how you became a Christian or how you started to develop your faith. Um, I grew up in Pell, Iowa, a small town, very religious town. Uh, my parents both had a strong faith and yeah, I don't know if there was ever like a moment, but that was always something that was a part of our family and through experiences with our church and with our family, I developed my faith. Uh, let's, I'll wait here. You good, April? 
Good. Hey. Uh, so um, when did maybe your faith start to become real? Are there any moments along the way later on that, that happened? Uh, any people along the way that, that you know, as you started to grow up, it became more like your faith and more real to who you are? Um, yeah, I mean, I had some moments. I remember when I was in um, fourth grade, we traveled to Mexico for like three weeks. And we, we just lived with like this pastor in this village. Like, I don't know, there's probably like 500 people in this village. And that, I would say, so I was 10 years old, that I would say my faith started to become real in that moment for sure. Now, uh, you and I have been kind of hanging out a little bit off and on now for maybe five years together. So uh, what do you do now, and how do you feel like your faith kind of impacts the work that you do? Like my job? Sure, or anything <laughs> else. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, well, I think, I think a couple things. One, I, uh, the job that I have, so I... I actually work for my dad who owns a owns a company that is it's a small business but it's like fairly good sized and something that's been cool is um, there's just like a lot of resources that come with that and so to get to think about well let me say this when I, I remember when I was growing up I used to in uh, like you know this trip to Mexico and these things I used to think why why did I get to be a white man in an affluent community, a two-parent home, um, you know, all these things in 2000, whatever, in the United States. Like, that just really bothered me. Like, why? It's like I kind of hit the lottery in terms of, like, mm -hmm. on the track for, like, whatever. The world is, like, made for people like me, you know? And somebody told me when I was, I must have been in high school, and they said to me, you know, I used to think about that a lot too and I came to the conclusion that instead of constantly wondering why that's true about me I'm going to spend my life using that gift or platform or whatever in the service of others and that was that to this day is so profound for me and so at work we get to do that like I am in the process of making decisions about owning a company because my dad owns the company, you know? It's like, not like I was some genius who worked my way up this company, my dad owns it, you know? And so that, that's on one side. On the other side, uh, my wife, Lene, and I, we coach at East High School. And similarly, I, I've been blessed. I come from a family of coaches. I have, my dad was a coach. His brother was a college coach. My grandpa on my mom's side was a coach. So we just have that such like, what you do, you know? And I chose, right out of college, I chose intentionally, I moved to Des Moines and I was like, I wanna coach at the worst athletics place in Iowa. Like I could, I don't know if you know anything about like Pell Athletics, but they, it's a successful, it, like every sport, they're just good at a lot of stuff. Annoyingly so, <laughs> annoyingly so. <laughs> And so that's what I came from, like just like the front runner of all front runners. And I just decided like, okay, I'm not gonna go to a place like that. Like I'm gonna 
where is like the worst place with the least amount of resources, the least amount of good coaching, all the things. And so I just went there and I'm still there. Yeah, well, I noticed you were wearing, it was, <laughs> yeah. it was nice here. This was not planned, but I, I was gonna use this as a little prop if Josh didn't go. I was like, hey, I noticed you were wearing an East High jersey here today. And what are you guys thinking about with your future, you and Linnea? Like, yeah, um, well, we're, we're actually actively looking to move into the neighborhood around the high school. Um, I mean, one of the things we've learned is like transportation is a big hurdle for people. And so we like to have the high school kids over. And so we're just going to live close enough that they can walk to our house. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know how long we'll coach there or whatever, but it's like we're in, you know. What do, you, what do you think here? And let me ask you this. How many of you know Josh? How many of you know Linnea? Can you raise your hands? Um, you know, you, I realize you have to say yes to this in this moment, but have you met God in them? <laughs> or somebody, would somebody or a couple of you have the courage to even talk about how maybe you've experienced the goodness of God in them and you, and you need to say it loud so that everyone can hear, but... Yeah, Allie. Um, I'll just share, um, Linnea has been supportive of me in a hard, um, a hard thing that I've had to go through. Um, something that she has not, but she has the compassion and the understanding and the the listening, the recognizing when I was struggling with something. Um, and so I just have appreciated her kindness and her compassion. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Anybody else want to just say, a, a Katie, come on up. Josh, you know, he, this is a total surprise to him, so I'm so <laughs> sure he's horrified right now. He's like, what are you doing? No, I'm not going to say anything Josh hasn't already heard, but this is just like God just works in cool ways. So my little sister actually like had several opportunities to be God and be Jesus and be a sister in Christ to Josh in college. So she's off. She's a, she and her husband are both pastors now. They live in New York. And when I moved to Des Moines just over a year ago, year and a half ago, I was like, well, I need a realtor I can trust, you know, like houses and cars, the two things where I'm like, I might get taken advantage of here, right? Um, and my sister was like, hey, I know this guy from college and he's amazing and he loves Jesus. And so then getting to know Josh through that and getting to hear how my sister was an impact on him and then he was able to be an impact on me. Um, and he's actually who told me about this church and got me here. So just cool ways that I think just by spreading that ripple effect of being the hands and feet of Jesus, we don't know, you know, we don't know where it's gonna go and it's just kind of cool to be a part of. Thanks, Katie. We, anyone else wanna say? You're, you're welcome to, you don't have to. You can let Josh, oh, great, yeah. Yeah, just a really small thing, even just from like a week or two ago, uh, when you did your child dedication, uh, and, and I saw a bunch of different people show up, students that you guys coached, and I'd not gotten to talk to you about your coaching or anything before that, but to see people come, I was like, oh, okay, they're that kind of coach. They're the ones that like actually invest in the students and the students invest back, and that's always just a really cool thing to see, and you can tell that that is how you are reaching people, and that's how you're showing Jesus to people. 
Thanks, Craig. Um, hey, well, you're the story, bud. <laughs> and uh, don't take any offense, but you're very ordinary. Yeah, I am. <laughs> um, but, but God has revealed his extraordinariness through you, my friend. So keep going. Keep listening. Uh, we all benefit from it. So Josh DeWard, everyone. I'll hand this back to you, Gray. So I'll just, I'll just close with this. Um, so you get one of my other favorite poems to close with as well, all right? So uh, I think this is about paying attention, being ready for God to express himself through very ordinary things. So it's by Annie Lightheart. It's called The Second Music. Now I understand that there are two melodies playing, one below the other, one easier to hear. The other, lower, steady, perhaps more faithful for being less heard, yet always present. When all other things seem lively and real, this one fades, yet the notes of it touch as gently as fingertips as, as the sound of names laid over each child at birth. I want to stay in that music without striving or cover, yet the truth of, truth of our lives is what is plain. The telling is so soft that this mortal time, this irrevocable change, becomes beautiful. I stop and stop again to hear the second music. I hear the children in the yard, a train, then birds. All this is in it and will be gone. I set my ear to it as I would to a heart. So let's pray. Father, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. Surprise us all the time, speak to us through the ordinary, and give us the grace, Father, to continue to listen to you and through our lives um, reveal just how great you are uh, to the people and places around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.